Chapter 16 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton, Chapter 16. When they had him down and helpless at their feet, a dry branch was thrust into the embers, and as it flamed held aloft that the light might fall upon his face. To him it revealed the half-dozen faces that looked down at him, weather-worn, hairy, and browned with dirt, the eyes, for the moment, aglow with the pleasure of the hunter who has tracked and snared his prey. They held their prey and gazed at it, as they would have gazed at and measured a beast they had roped into helplessness. Satisfaction at the capture shone in their faces, the natural and grim satisfaction of him who has met and mastered his natural enemy. That, for the moment, was all. They had met with a man and overcome him. Curiosity, even, would come later. Theodore, after his first instinctive lunge and struggle, lay motionless, flaccid and beaten, understanding in a flash that was agony that men were still what they had been when he fled from them into the wilderness, beastmen who stalked and tore each other. In the torchlight, the dirty, coarse faces were savage and animal. The eyes that glowered down at him had the staring intentness of the animal. He expected death from a blow or a knife thrust and closed his eyes that he might not see it coming, and instead saw, as plainly as with bodily eyes, a vision of Ada by the campfire, sitting hunched and listening for his footsteps, listening for it, staring at the dreadful darkness through night after dreadful night. In a torment of pity for his mate and her child, he stammered an appeal for his life. For God's sake, I wasn't doing any harm. If you'll only listen, my wife, all that I want. If they were moved, they did not show it. And it may be they were not moved, having lived themselves through so much of misery and bodily terror that they had ceased to respond to its familiar workings in others. Fear and the expression of fear to them were usual and normal, and they listened undisturbed while he tried to stammer out his pleading. Not only undisturbed, but apparently uninterested. While he spoke, one was twisting the knife from his belt, and another taking stock of the contents of his food bag. And he had only gasped out a broken sentence or two when the holder of the torch, as it seemed the leader, cut him short with, are you alone? Once satisfied on that head, he listened no more, but dropped the torch back onto the fire and kicked apart the dying embers. The action was apparently a sign to move on. The hands that gripped Theodore dragged him to his feet and urged him forward. And with a captor holding to either arm, he stumbled out of the clump of stark trees into the open desert, now whitened by a moon at the full. There was little enough talk amongst his captors, as, for more than two hours, they thrust and guided him along. Such muttered talk as there was, was not addressed to their prisoner, and he judged it best to be silent. It was, so he guessed, the red shine of his fire that had drawn attention to his presence, and, the fear of instant death removed, he drew courage from the thought that the men who held and hurried him must be dwellers in some nearby village. Once he had reached it and been given opportunity to tell his story and explain his presence, they would cease to hold him in suspicion. 
So he comforted himself as they strode through the wilderness in silence. After an hour of steady tramping, they turned inland sharply from the river till a mile or so brought them to a broken, rising ground and a smaller stream babbling from the hills. They followed its course, for the most part steadily uphill, and at the end of another mile the scorched black stumps gave place to trees uninjured. Spruce firs in their solemn foliage, and oaks with their tracery of twigs, a copse, then a stretch of short turf, and the spring of heather underfoot, then down to more trees growing thickly in a hollow, and through them a glow that was fire. Then figures that moved, silhouetted in and out of the glow and across it, an open space in the midst of the trees, and hut shapes, half seen and half guessed at, in the mingling of flicker and deep shadow. Out of the darkness, a dog yapped his warning, then another, and at the sound, Theodore thrilled and quivered as at a voice from another world. Now and again, while he lived in his wilderness, he had heard the sharp and familiar yelp of some masterless dog run wild and hunting for his food. But the dog that lived with man and guarded him was an adjunct of civilization. The warning had roused the little community before the newcomers emerged from the shadow of the trees, and as they entered the clearing and were visible, men hurried towards them, shouting questions. Theodore found himself the center of a staring, hustling group, which urged him to the fire that it might see him the better, which questioned his guards while it stared at him. Here, too, was the strange aloofness that refrained from direct address. He was gazed at, stolidly or eagerly, taken stock of as if he were a beast, and his guards explained how and where they had found him, as if he himself were incapable of speech, as they might have spoken of the finding of a dog that had strayed from its owner. Perhaps it was uneasiness that held him silent, or perhaps he adapted himself unconsciously to the general attitude. At any rate, as he remembered afterwards, he made no effort to speak. The men and women who crowded round him, staring and murmuring, were in number perhaps between thirty and forty, women with matted hair, straggling and man unshorn, their garments, like his own, a patchwork of oddments, and all of them uncouth and unclean. One woman, he noted, had a child at her half-naked breast, a dirty little nursling but a few months old, its downy pate crusted with scabs. He stared at it, wondering as to the manner of its birth, the mother returning his scrutiny with open-mouthed interest until shouldered aside without ceremony by a man whom Theodore recognized for the leader of his band of captors. When they reached the shadow of the clump of trees, he had stridden ahead and vanished, presumably to report and seek orders from some higher authority. And now, at a word from him, Theodore was again jerked forward by his guards and with the crowd breaking and tailing behind him, was led some fifty or sixty yards further to where on the edge of the clump of trees stood a building, a tumble-down cottage. The moon without and a fire within showed broken panes stuffed with moss and a thatched roof falling to decay. Inside the atmosphere was foul and stale and heavy with the heat of a blazing wood fire which alone gave light to the room. By the fire, Seated on a backless kitchen chair sat a man, gray of head and bent of shoulder, but even in the firelight his eyes were keen and steely, large bright blue eyes that shone under thick gray eyebrows. His face, with its bright stubborn eyes and tight mouth, 
was, for all its dirt, the face of a man who gave orders. And it did not escape the prisoner that the others, the crowd that was thrusting and packing itself into the room, were one and all silent till he spoke. Come nearer, he said, and on the word Theodore was pushed close to him. Let him go, and Theodore was loosed. Someone, at a sign, lit a stick from the heap beside the fire and held it aloft, and for a moment, till it flared itself out, there was silence while the old man peered at the stranger. With the sudden light, the hustling and jostling ceased, and the crowd, like Theodore, waited on the old man's words. Tell me, at last came the order, what you were doing here. Tell me everything. And he lifted a dirty lean finger like a threat. What you were doing on our land, where you came from, what you want, and speak the truth or it will be the worse for you. Theodore told him, while the steel-blue eyes searched his face as well, as they might be in the semi-darkness and the half-seen crowd stood mute. He told of his life as it had been lived with Ada, of their complete separation from their fellows for the space of merely two years, of the coming of the child and the consequent need of help for his wife, conscious all the time not only of the questioning, unshrinking eyes of his judge, but of the other eyes that watched him suspiciously from the corners and shadows of the room. Two or three times he faltered in his telling, oppressed by the long, steady silence. For throughout there was no comment, no word of interest or encouragement. Only once, when he paused in the hope of encouragement, the old man ordered, Go on. He went on, striving to steady his voice and pleading against he knew not what of hostility, suspicion, and fear. And so, he ended uncertainly, they found me. I wasn't doing any harm. I suppose they saw my fire. From someone in the darkness behind him came a grunt that might indicate assent. Then, again, there was silence that lasted. The dumb, heavy threat of it was suddenly intolerable, and Theodore broke it with vehemence. For God's sakes, tell me what you're going to do. It's not much I ask, and it's not for myself I ask it. If you can't help me yourselves, there must be other people who can. Tell me where I am and where I ought to go. My wife, she must have help. There was no actual response to his outburst, but some of the half-seen figures stirred, and he heard a muttering in the shadow that he took for the voices of women. Tell me where I am, he repeated, and where I can go for help. It was the first question only that was answered. You are on our land. Your land, but where is it? In what part of England? I don't know, said the old man, and shrugged his lean shoulders, but you haven't any right on it. It's ours. He pushed back his chair and stood up to his full, tall height. Then, raising his hand, addressed the assembly of his followers. You have all of you heard what he said, and you know what he wants. Now let me hear what you think. Say it out loud and not in each other's ears. He dropped his arm and stood waiting a reply, and after a moment, one came from the back of the room. It's winter, said a man's voice, half sulky, half defiant, and we've hardly enough left for ourselves. We don't want any more mouths here. We've more than we can fill as it is. A murmur of agreement encouraged him, and he went on, louder, and pushing through the crowd as he spoke. We fend for our own, and he must fend for his. He ought to think himself lucky if we let him go after we've taken him on our land. What business had he there? This time the murmur of agreement was stronger, and a second voice called over it. 
If we catch him here again, he won't get off so easily. The ascent that followed was more than ascent. Applause that swelled and grew almost clamorous. The old man stilled it with a lifting of his knotted hand. Then you won't have him here? You don't want him? The no in answer was vigorous. Refusal, it seemed, was unanimous. Theodore tried to speak, to explain that all he asked, but again the knotted hand was lifted. And are you for letting him go? The words dropped out slowly and were followed by a hush, significant as the question itself. This much was clear to the listener, that behind them lay a fear and a threat. The nature of the threat could be guessed at, since they would not keep him and dared not let him go. But where and what was the motive for the fear that had prompted the slow, sly question and the uneasy silence that followed it? He heard his own heartbeats in the long, uneasy silence, while he sought in vain for the reason for their dread of one man, and tried in vain to find words. It seemed minutes, long minutes, and not seconds till a voice made answer from the shadows. Not if it isn't safe. And at the words, as a signal, came voices from this side and that, speech hurried, excited, and tumultuous. It wasn't safe. What did they know of him, and how could they prove his story true? He might be a spy. Now he knew where to find them, knew they had food. He might come back and bring others with him. When he tried to speak, the voices grew louder, overshouted him, and one man at his side, gesticulating wildly, cried out that they would be mad to let him go, since they could not tell how much he knew. The phrase was taken up, as it seemed in panic, by man after man and woman after woman. They could not tell how much he knew. They pressed nearer as they shouted, their faces closing in on him, spitting, working mouths and angry eyes. They were handling him almost, and when once they handled him, he knew it, the end would be sure and swift. He dared not move, lest fingers went up to his throat. He dared not even cry out. It was the old man who saved him with another call for silence. Not out of mercy, there was small mercy in the lined, dirty face, but because, it seemed, there was yet another point to be considered. If they came again, he jerked his head towards the open, we should be a man the stronger. Now they are stronger than we are by nearly a dozen. Apparently, the argument had weight, for its hearers stood uncertain and arrested. An instinct bade Theodore seize on the moment they had given him. What he said in the beginning he could not remember, how he caught their attention and held it. But when cooler consciousness returned to him, they were listening while he bargained for his life. He bargained and haggled for the right to live, offering goods and sweat and muscle in exchange for a place on the earth. He was strong and would work for them. He could hunt and fish and dig. He would earn by his labor every mouthful that fell to him, every mouthful that fell to his wife. More, he had food of his own laid away for the winter months, dried fish and nuts, and the store of fruit he had salved and herded from the autumn. These all could be fetched and shared if need be. He bribed them while they haggled with their eyes. Let them come with him, any of them, and prove what he said. He had more than enough. Let them come with him. When he stopped, exhausted and sobbing for breath, the extreme of the danger had passed. If he has food, someone grunted, and Theodore, turning to the unseen speaker, cried out, I swear I have, I swear it. He hoped he had won, 
and then knew himself in peril again when the man who had raised the cry before repeated doggedly that they could not tell how much he knew. Take him away, said the old man suddenly. You take him, you too. And he pointed twice. Keep him while we talk till I send for you. At least it was reprieve, and Theodore knew himself in safety, if only for a passing moment. For their own comfort, if not for his, his guards escorted him to the fire in the open, where they crouched down, stolid and watchful. Theodore between them, exhausted by emotion and flaccid both in body and mind. There was a curious relief in the knowledge that he had shot his last bolt and could do nothing more to save himself, that whatever befell him, release or swift death, was a happening beyond his control. No effort more was required of him, and all that he could do was to wait. He waited dumbly, in the end almost drowsily, with his head bent forward on his knees. End of chapter 16. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.